this television show named Tea Hall. Have you seen this? Definitely probably some of us who are older have uh, heard of this show. It was first run on CBS from 1969 to 1971. I was born in 1970, and it ran in syndication, so I remember my parents watching this as a child. And it's just basically slapstick humor. It's, it takes place in this uh, pretend town called Cornfield Country. <laughs> and it's just basically one-liners and jokes, one after another. And one of my favorite skits from that, and I can still remember the song after all these years, was a little skit called Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Do you remember this? I don't know if I've seen this show since I was like five years old, probably. But this song stays in my head. And they sing, Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. So that's the chorus. And they would break in the midst of this song, and they would talk about something that is bad luck for them or something that's causing them gloom, despair, and agony. And it's just trivial things. It's things that that make you laugh. And it's a lot of fun to watch. If you haven't seen this, just Google. Um, it's, 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 It's a lot of fun. But here's the question. What happens when it's no longer funny? What happens when the gloom and the despair and the agony begins to suffocate? And we wonder, what is God doing in the midst of this? What happens when the deep, dark depression isn't something to laugh about, but takes root in our lives, and it brews into a storm that makes it difficult to discern God's face? What happens when these trials become overwhelming? That's what I want us to think about today. And so we're going to call our study Navigating the Storms of Life. And we're going to look at that passage that Krista read for us in some detail as we go forward. And let me just say, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you don't yet call yourself a Christian, but you're exploring Christianity, what we're going to see here are the resources that the good news of Jesus gives to people like you and me to be able to navigate these storms of life. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you're going to be reminded that God is at work in some mysterious ways, and you can be reminded of the gospel and how God works out everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for our good and for his glory. So let's jump into that text and take a look at what it says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who is writing these instructions to persecuted Christians. James, of course, didn't believe that his brother Jesus was the Messiah during his earthly ministry until he met the resurrected Jesus Christ and his whole world was turned upside down. What you may not know is he became the leader of the Jerusalem church, the very place where they crucified Jesus, not in the church, but the city. And so he faced a lot of intense heat being the main representative and pastor of that city. And so he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. This is just a a nickname to describe the Jewish Christians that he's writing to who have now been dispersed because of the persecution going on in the city of Jerusalem. So James knows what he's talking about when he talks about trials. And he knows and he cares for what his people are going through who are now refugees in other places seeking to put life back together as they follow Jesus. And so the first thing that James is going to tell us here is that trials are an unavoidable reality. He says in verse 2, 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And notice what he says here. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, but when. (laughs) He's not uh, entertaining kind of a Pollyanna approach to this world. He's not just saying, you know, look on the bright side of life or the sun will come out tomorrow. He's saying, look, you're going to face real difficulties in your life. And to those he's writing to, they're experiencing right now. The Apostle Peter actually wrote to some Christians experiencing uh, severe persecution as well. And he said to them this, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. He said, don't be surprised at the trials that you are facing, as though something strange were happening to you. I'm kind of comforted by that because it tells me that that probably they, in their own ways, respond like we do. Just ask, why is this happening? (laughs) What have I done to deserve something like this? But what James and both, both James and Peter are doing are leaning into the ancient wisdom of their people. For example, Job in chapter 14 said, Man is born of woman and is a few days and full of trouble. The sage of Ecclesiastes says, What is man from all the toil and striving of heart? For all his days are full of sorrow. Both these these ancient sages give wisdom to talk about how, look, life is full of sorrow. And part of the reason it's full of sorrow is because it's full of trials and full of storms. We wouldn't experience sorrow and pain if life was a breeze. So James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So even though his people are facing severe persecution, the first real outbreak of persecution among Christians, there's all kinds of trials that just hit us upside the head. Just think about the trials of our own lives. It can be something from our our phone falling and the screen shattering and, "Ah, why is this happening? Or financial difficulties, the experience of just being around mean people. Maybe going outside late for a meeting and find your tire is flat. Or maybe experiencing just disasters in our own life. Or, or maybe children who just, for whatever reason, are having a bad day and it makes your day a bad day. We're mindful of just the trials we're all experiencing to different degrees because of the war going on in Ukraine right now. Now, obviously, we're not there and experiencing it firsthand. But we wonder about the implications for our own lives. We wonder how we can help out in situations like this. To be trials of persecution, or even trials of death. The death of someone that we love, maybe who passed away unexpectedly, or experienced a prolonged sickness, or maybe even our own inevitable death. And so James tells us, we're going to meet these kind of trials. And that word meet, I think in the translation I'm using, is a bit weak. It literally means to fall into. Can count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. It's interesting to see the way different translations put it. One said, when you encounter trials. Another says, when you experience trials. Uh, Still another, when you face trials of many kinds. Two paraphrases of the scripture put it like this. When troubles of any kind come your way. When tests and challenges come at you from all sides. All these translations are trying to get at the core of what James is saying here, which is basically this. It is a certainty that we will face trials in this life. It is guaranteed. And so someone says, okay, James, I get it. Life is full of ups and downs. 
I don't think anybody is denying that. And probably, if we're honest, we don't. But here's the question. How do you respond to the trials of your life? That's the question that James is going to get at here. So first of all, he tells us trials are an unavoidable reality. But he's going to tell us that trials call for an unwavering response. Look at what he says here. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. One commentator put it like this. He said, each word in the prescription is important. Count it all joy. Let's look at those last two words in the first part of that prescription, all joy. When you face trials, is this your response (laughs) to count it 100% pure joy? James is calling for a response not of maybe 50% joy and 50% frustration. He's not even calling for a response that is 75% joy, 25% anger. He's not even calling for a response of 95% joy and just 5% annoyance. He's calling for pure, unadulterated joy. So let me ask you again, is this how you typically respond to trials that hit your life? I mean, how many of you wake up every morning and go, you know what I really like to experience today? I like to experience some joy of trials. (laughs) What would really make my day is if I could just have some bad news come at me. I mean, who thinks this way? Someone maybe want to say this out loud, but maybe in your own mind you're saying, come on, James, I and everybody I know count it all joy when we get out of the trial. How can you tell us to count it all joy whenever we fall into them? That's a fair question, isn't it? But my friends, note that James does not say enjoy the trial, but rather to count the trial all joy. Remember, each word in the prescription is important. So when we dial in on those words, count it, in the original language, it's a word that means to consider or to reckon or to regard. It's oftentimes used in financial accounting. We've got to account this situation in a certain way. So to put it another way, God is calling us to respond to the trials of life with our minds engaged. There's a way that we need to be thinking when trials come our way. And the reason for that, my friends, is simply this. Trials have a unique way of revealing what we truly believe about life and about God. You may say that you believe that God is sovereign in control of everything in your life. But when your child drops another glass and it shatters on the floor, how do you respond? In that particular moment, what do you believe about life and reality and God? You may say that you believe that God works all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, out for your good. But how do you respond when you get fired from your work? That's the question before us. And so James is going to unpack it further. He's not just calling us to a Pollyanna, stick our head in the sand approach. He's not doing that at all. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. 
He's reminding them of something that they know, that they have been taught, that they have heard perhaps from James himself. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Okay, James is reminding us that what is not preeminent in our lives, chaos, that is a word. But rather, trials at work, and we know there's something else at work. There's something at work that produces steadfastness, and that is the testing of your faith. So let me ask you this question. When you take an exam, say at school or maybe to get licensed for something you do at work, what three elements are there? There's the test, right? There's a person taking the test, which would be you. And there's someone administering that test or overseeing that test. And so James is telling us the the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. So we need to think about the trials that come into our life as a test that we're taking that's being given to us by God. Think of the test in another way. You know that phrase, the hotter the fire, the purer the gold? It comes from the, the science of, of testing metals. So think about how gold is made, or how it's refined, how it's shaped. You, you put the metal into the fire, and you heat it up. And as you heat it up, the dross rises to the surface, all these impurities. And those are scraped across the top and removed, and the, the fire is heated more. And it's being tested for purity. And as the impurities come up, that gold becomes much more pure. That's called testing the metal. And actually, Peter, the apostle, uses this imagery in his letter that he writes that we referenced a while ago. He says, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. James says our faith is being tested. It's being revealed for what it is, but the end goal of that is that it may be found to result in praise and honor and glory. As I was preparing for this, I came across this quote by Alec Motier in his commentary on the book of James, and this is what he says. We may say that we believe that God is our Father, but as long as we remain untested on the point, our belief falls short of steady conviction. But suppose the day comes, as it does and will, when circumstances seem to mock our creed, when the cruelty of life denies his fatherliness, His silence calls into question his almightiness. And the sheer, haphazard, meaningless jumble of events challenges the possibility of a creator's ordering hand. It is in this way, he says, that life's trials test our faith for genuineness. Let me tell you about the strange case of a college kid, a dead battery, and a few bad days. I know this case well because I was that college student. Now, back in my days here at Texas A&M, I was, like many students are, poor. 
And I worked to put myself through college. I bought a lot of Top Ramen, not because I especially love Top Ramen or couldn't make anything else, but because that's what I could afford. I would splurge every once in a while and get the Tuesday night double Little Caesars pizza special and make that stretch out as long as I could. And so there's this one point here at A&M when I went out and I got in my truck to go to work and I tried turning it over and the battery wouldn't work. And I was like, oh, man. Even though I didn't sing it at the moment, the attitude of my heart was gloom, (laughs) despair, and agony on me. I mean, my life was falling apart. And I was a poor college student, and I thought, I don't have the money to pay to have this battery changed. A friend of mine came, and he helped me jump my car, and I got it to the local Walmart, and I told them what had happened, and they tested it, and they said, yep, your battery's dead. And I was like, oh, great. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. But the guy said, the good news is that this is still under warranty. And so you get credited for most of the cost. It's only going to cost you, I think it was like $8 at the time. And so I was like, oh, man, this is great. And so I had the test. I failed it. But it ended up in good news. A couple days later, I go out and I start my car again, except where it wouldn't start. Oh, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. At least that was my attitude. And so I go to, my, to the front of my car, I open the hood, and I'm just fiddling around. I don't know much about cars, but I was fiddling around, and I noticed the battery cable was loosened. And so, oh, I can fix this. And so I tightened it up and jumped in, and my car started right away. So here's the thing. I had the same test given to me several different days, and I failed it both times, just because my attitude was atrocious. In those moments, I acted like chaos was the Lord of my life, that God didn't exist, that he didn't help people like me, and that just the worst-case scenario was going to happen. And so I put that forth, just as an example in my own life, of how my faith was tested for its genuineness, and it was found wanting. There was lots of impurities in my faith that needed to be burned away. And so I want to pause and just make a, an important point here, lest anyone get the wrong idea of what we're saying. We are not saying the reason why you fall into trials is because you need your faith to be tested. Rather, we're saying that when you fall into trials, your faith is being tested. It's an important but subtle distinction here. If we're saying that the reason you fall into trials is because you need to have your faith tested, We're saying that if your faith was stronger, you wouldn't fall into trials. And that's not the case. James tells us we're going to meet trials of all kinds, and it's going to happen throughout our lives. But what we are saying is that when something happens, when a trial comes into our life, when the storm clouds gather, our faith is being tested. And so we can never say to someone, well, the reason why this is happening to you is because you don't have enough faith. That's not at all the case. Jesus had trials in his own life, and none of us is going to accuse Jesus of not having enough faith. So James tells us in this passage that we're to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith 
produces steadfastness. There's something at work in this trial which God is seeking as an end goal, and it's steadfastness. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use that word every day. It's just one of those, basically the only time I use it is in church because that's one of these kind of fancy kind of theological words. I'm sure some of you who are smarter than I probably use this well. But the Greek word behind that means endurance, perseverance, patience, constancy. What God is at work in this trial trying to produce in you is endurance, is perseverance, is patience, is constancy. When I think about what this word is trying to convey, in my mind, I think spiritual stamina. That young college kid, new to the faith, didn't have much stamina when a trial hit his life. But what God is working in us, which is pleasing in his sight, is spiritual stamina, the ability to endure, and to endure in good ways. Now, some of you know the story of Jeremiah. God called him at the very dark time in the nation of Israel's history. And he basically told Jeremiah up front, this is going to be difficult. Instead of building up, I'm going to actually have you tear down. Instead of planting, I'm actually going to have you uproot. You're not going to be Mr. Popular. (laughs) In fact, people are going to really not like you at all. But this is the role I'm giving to you. And about 12 chapters into the book of Jeremiah, the early part of his ministry, Jeremiah raises a complaint to God. He is, as you might say, as my grandfather used to say, he's bellyaching <laughs> to God. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. And then God responds to him and says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? In other words, Jeremiah, I've designed you not to compete with men, but to compete with horses. I've made you and I've called you to be a thoroughbred. You're in this race for the long haul. And if men wear you out, how are you going to compete with horses? I love that imagery. (laughs) It strengthens me. It emboldens me. When I think about trials that come into my life and when my faith is being tested, I'm reminded that God wants me to be able to race with the thoroughbreds. So this passage has told us so far that trials are an unavoidable reality. We get that. It's also told us that trials call for an unwavering response. The last thing it's going to call us to, to understand that trials can yield an unimaginable reward. Look what it says in verse 4. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is the reward that God is after in our lives. He wants a spiritual stamina to be a work in our lives to produce a spiritual maturity. Or simply to put it another way, God wants to form Christ-likeness in your life and in mine. And so when he says, let steadfastness have its full effect, we need to understand that when we hit trials and they're unpleasant, but yet God is calling us to understand that he is at least at work in this Developing our own character. We need to understand, I think, this is, this is kind of a logical understanding, that we could actually short-circuit a trial's intended effect in our life. I was certainly doing that when my battery wasn't working. <laughs> There's something that God allowed in my life, and I responded incredibly wrong, wrongly. And <laughs> what God was wanting to produce in me didn't get produced. And when he sent that test again a couple days later and I responded exactly the same way, 
I wasn't developing. I was shortchanging that trial's intended effect, at least one of the intended effects of it. So a couple points of application, my friends, as we wrap this up. The first one is this. Let's acknowledge that life at times is overwhelming. There's nothing brave in following Jesus and pretending like life sometimes doesn't hurt, that it sometimes doesn't sting, that sometimes you experience things that leave you scratching your head wondering what God is doing. It's okay to admit that sort of thing. So let's just admit that at times life is overwhelming. But that's exactly where God wants to meet us. I came across this quote by Mother Teresa. She said, I know God will not give me anything I can't handle. I just wish that he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> and that made me laugh. But if I could just tweak a little bit of what Mother Teresa said. She is, she is so much my superior in almost every way, I'm sure. But there's, there's this notion, especially among Christians, in which we say, God won't give me anything I, can, I can't handle. You, maybe you've said this yourself. And let me just tell you, because I know from uh, following Jesus for decades, that there are going to be times where God gives you stuff you cannot handle. <laughs> God is going to give you more than you can handle. Let me just put it bluntly. But that's actually good news. How is that good news? How is that possibly good news, that God would give me more than I can handle? That does not sound like good news at all to me. Remember what we just said. Those places where life seems overwhelming, it's in those places where God meets us so that we don't rely on our own strength, but on his. Listen to what Paul said, writing to the Corinthians. This is a second letter that he writes to them, and he tells them, we do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. You see what Paul is saying here? God has given us so much on our plate. These trials and afflictions are so tough that we despaired because we were burdened beyond our strength. God is giving us way more than we can handle. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. What are you saying, Paul? Paul was saying, I'm saying that God allowed these things to come into our lives. As we're going about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, he's allowed us to experience intense affliction and persecution, where everywhere we were worried about whether we were going to live or die. And we were so burdened by this, this overwhelming weight that God placed upon our lives that was more than we can handle. But God met us there. He's teaching us not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So even if we do die because of the storm in our life, even if we pay the ultimate price for following Jesus, there's good news because God raises the dead. And so therefore we trust in him. I've shared this quote with you before. It's one of those that has spoken to me over and over again in my life by Alan Redpath. He said, there is no circumstance no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. 
So let's admit that sometimes life is overwhelming, very overwhelming. But let's also view every trial as an opportunity to trust God again. This week, you're going to face trials. And what I want to to challenge you to do is to consider the trials you will face this week as opportunities to trust God again. Peter, in writing to those persecuted Christians, told them this. He said, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Well, how do we follow in the footsteps? I mean, he died for the sins of the world. How do we follow in his footsteps? How is that, how is that an example? This is what Peter says. Jesus, when he faced his trial, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When, when Jesus faced his trials, when he faced his suffering, He did not react with sin in his heart, in his mind, in his words. When insults came his way, he didn't let them flow back at those who gave to him. When they nailed him to the cross, he could have called the angels of heaven to scorch the earth, but he didn't. Instead, he entrusted himself to his father, even when he asked, Why have you forsaken me? Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. If you don't have a copy of this book, you should get this in your library. There will be times when you need to pick it up and read it, as I did this last week. Keller says, For reasons past our finding out, even Christ did not bring salvation and grace to us apart from infinite suffering on the cross. As he loved us enough to face the suffering with patience, and courage, so we must learn to trust him enough to do the same. Or as Peter once again says, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So my friends, it is a guarantee that most likely this week you're going to face trials. They may be minor, they may be severe. You have the option of viewing the trials that you encounter this week as an opportunity to entrust yourself to God, once again, who is with you in the midst of those trials. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, reminded these Christians who are suffering, he's writing from prison, he knows suffering, but he tells them this, the Lord is near. What beautiful words to believe when your life gets turned upside down. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, in the midst of your trials, remember that God is near. He draws near to the brokenhearted, to those who are lowly and burdened in life. And because he draws near, pray to him about everything. Thank him for what he's done and tell him what you need. And in the process of doing that, Paul says the peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you pray to God in the midst of your trial, God will make it go away. He says, when God draws near and you pray to him, entrusting yourself to him once again, his peace descends upon you and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus in the middle of the storm. So we can put it like this. Sometimes God calms the storm surrounding his children. And sometimes he calms his children in the surrounding storm. In just a few moments, during our time of communion, we're going to sing this song, Cornerstone. It's one of our favorites here at Mercy Hill Church. The songs we sing here, we want to be good, solid songs that help root us in life. And so we have these words that we're going to sing. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Do you understand what we're singing, my friends? When this veil of darkness in this storm hits our life, the kind that that makes us hard to see the face of God, and it seems that God is hiding his face from us, it's in these moments that we're going to entrust ourselves to God all over again and to rest on his unchanging grace. That's the anchor that holds us in the midst of the storm. When we can't trace his hand, we trust his heart. There's a great quote by Scott Sauls. I'm I'm sure I've shared this with you multiple times, but it's so good. If your hope is anchored in Jesus, the worst case future scenario for you is resurrection and everlasting life. So Mercy Hill Church, as you navigate the storms of life, may the joy of this truth anchor your soul to reality. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his his eternal glory in Christ. What a beautiful phrase. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be glory, our dominion forever and ever. Amen.